bite-sized birthday biography podcast. I'm your host, Hannah Mira. This is a podcast which shines a spotlight on a person born on this day at some point in history somewhere in the world who made a positive lasting impact. Today, January 28th, we're going to talk about Johann von Holst, the teacher who saved hundreds of Jewish babies during World War II. Aside from civil rights activists, the other biggest population of unsung icons that we cover on this podcast are World War II heroes. World War II was this horrific, grotesque, unconscionable opportunity for so many people to do the right thing and a lot to do the absolute wrong thing. Ordinary people stepped up to help, to save, to rescue, to protect, often at their own peril. I have a fairly deep um, connection to World War II. I was not fortunate enough to be born Jewish, but I did come from a French family, and my grandmother was born and raised in Paris. Her, her siblings, and her mother were still in France when the Nazis invaded. My grandmother and her parents and uh, her three siblings moved to Normandy to get away from the heavy Nazi presence in Paris. One night, there was this big commotion downstairs, and my grandmother crept out of her bed and peered down from the stairs, and she saw four muddy, bloody British Royal Air Force flyers who had parachuted into the apple orchard next door. And the next door neighbor had brought the four boys over to my grandmother's house because her father was the only one around that spoke English. So knowing their duty to the allies, the family took them in, fully aware of the fact that in Nazi-occupied France, to house an enemy ally was to sign your death warrant, essentially. So for nine months, these four young men Harry, Eric, Kenneth, and Victor, I don't know their last names, I wish I did, lived in secret with my grandmother's family. The young men shared meals and laughter and fear in equal measures with the family. They were part of the family uh, until a neighbor or the milkman came to the door, and then they had to go run upstairs and hide. Upstairs was the first English word that my grandmother ever learned, and it meant so much more than just the second story of a house. The Nazis infiltrated Normandy to the point where there were more of them there than French people. So one day, the family moved to the town of Pierre Fix, rumbling out of town in a hay-filled cart right under the Nazis' noses. The four soldiers were hidden at the bottom of the cart under mounds of hay, luggage, and children. In the spring of 1941, the four boys managed to leave the family. Dressed up as farmers, one on foot, one on a bike, one in a cart, and one on a tractor, they escaped to a designated spot to meet up with the French resistance, who helped smuggle them into Portugal and then home to England. Two months after they left, a neighbor snitched on my grandmother's family. Nazis descended upon the home, invading one afternoon when great-grandfather was gone. My great-grandmother, at home with five children, including an infant, showed the utmost grace under pressure. The Nazis screamed at her to give them the British boys, and she calmly and truthfully said that there was no British people there, there was only kids. And the Nazis ransacked the house. They smashed every dish with their rifle butts. They sliced up the pillows and the blankets with their bayonets. And my great-grandmother stood there as still as she could, holding a screaming baby in her arms with this gaggle of small, terrified children behind her. And one of the Nazis walked up to her and put his gun to her heart. And he said, Madam, prison is near for you. We shall return. They never did return, thank God, but this experience left an obviously very permanent impression on my grandmother and her siblings, and in a lesser form on myself and my cousins when she shared this story with us. My grandmother and her family were some of the small, quiet, unsung heroes of World War II. I don't know what happened to the British paratroopers after they made it back to England. I hope that they lived their lives in the most full and happy capacity possible. 
Today's human in history, Johann von Holst, also did the brave, the dangerous, the right thing. And it haunted him for the rest of his life. Imagine if you can standing in a room of a hundred babies and children. You know you can only select 12 to take with you. The others will die. Many of them horrific deaths. How do you do it? This was the last chapter of the saga that we're going to talk about today. Johann saved hundreds of lives over a period of a year, but for him, for Carl Lutz, for Ho Feng Shan, Sir Nicholas Winton, Raoul Wallenberg, for all these people who risked it all to save total strangers during World War II, surely the thing that must have lingered in their minds was, could I have saved one more? I think about that scene in Schindler's List when Liam Neeson collapses, sobbing over the fact that he could have sold his gold pin and gotten at least one more person. These people did not ask for this unimaginable burden, but they took it on willingly and courageously. Johan was born in Amsterdam in 1911 to a furniture upholsterer and a housewife. There is little written about his early years, but we do know that he studied psychology in college and became a teacher afterwards. For the main focus of the action of today's story, it's important for us to have a mental map of what the setting looked like. So by 1942, Johan was the director of the Reformed Teacher Training College in Amsterdam. This was a Protestant religious seminary located at Plantage Middleland 27, a few houses down from what is today the Amsterdam Zoo. The seminary shared a garden with a creche or a nursery located at Plantage Middleland 31. These two buildings were right across the street, sort of like a triangular formation, from the Hollands Schwalberg Theater, located at Plantage Middelen 24. Once the Nazis rolled into Amsterdam, they turned the Hollands Schwalberg Theater into a holding center for Jews waiting to be shipped to Auschwitz. Once Jews arrived at the theater, all children under the age of 12 were sent across the street to the creche, where they too awaited transportation to Auschwitz, but doing so alone and terrified without their parents. So these three important buildings, the seminary, the theater, and the creche, formed this sort of hellish Jewish Bermuda Triangle. Now the key players. So Johan ran the seminary, which he had also turned into a safe haven for those who had refused to sign a loyalty oath to the Nazis and those fighting in the resistance. The creche was run by a Dutch teacher named Henriette Pimentel, and the Holland Schwalberg Theater operation had been placed under the care of Walter Suskind, a German Jew. In early 1943, Walter and Henriette realized that the children were not being placed in the creche for safekeeping, nor would they ever see their parents again, nor would any of them live much longer. This was not a temporary home while their parents were relocated. It was a pen at a stockyard. So Walter and Henriette went to work. First, they began to send out spies and feelers into the community, looking for sympathetic Dutch families to take in children. Now, it wasn't as easy as just finding someone with an extra room and a kind heart. The families had to resemble the babies and the children enough so as not to arouse suspicion from the Nazis who were constantly strolling the streets and investigating families that they suspected of being Jewish sympathizers. Placing a brown-eyed, brown-haired baby into an all-blonde and blue-eyed family would certainly raise some eyebrows, so there had to be meticulous matching. Once a family was found who was willing and similarly featured, it had to be explained to the child, providing they were old enough to understand, and the biological parents had to consent to their child being given away. As a parent, I cannot even fathom what this must have felt like for the parents, knowing that you're going to die, you're never going to see your child again, and they're going to go live with people that you've never met, but that this was their only possible chance of surviving. 
A few terrified parents convinced that the Nazis were telling the truth and that they would be indeed reunited with their babies at some point declined, but most of the parents agreed to let their children go. It was decided to save as many babies as possible since they were easier to smuggle out and they wouldn't accidentally tell someone that their adoptive parents were not their biological parents. Next, some fancy paperwork had to be done. Thanks to the lack of computers, paper records were much more easy to tamper with. They were procured and the child's name and record of their existence at the creche was erased. The child, everyone was told, never existed. Now came the tricky part. How to actually move a baby or even harder, a small child from the creche without the Nazis patrolling outside noticing. And this is where Johan came in. When Henriette and Walter bravely told him of their work, Johan immediately suggested using the creche and the seminary's shared back garden as a handoff location. So seminary students jumped on board to help, and in the middle of the night, a child or a small child or a baby would be passed over the dividing hedge and taken into the seminary. Once inside, the child would be cared for by the students until a way was devised to remove the child to its adopted home, usually smuggled out in a basket or a sack or a laundry bag. If the Nazis started to kind of sniff around uh, about all the backyard activity, then they would shift to the far more dangerous method of waiting until a tram passed, blocking the view between the guards at the theater across the street and the seminary, and a student would jump onto a bike, clutching a baby in a basket, and pedal as fast as humanly possible until they reach the child's new home. If circumstances permitted, a batch of children being sent over to the creche would start out as 30 and enter as 25, a dangerous choreography involving bravery on bikes and the unknowingly life-saving tram schedule. The operation was able to continue covertly and, unfortunately, piecemeal, as the sudden disappearance of dozens of children would have certainly been noticed. They literally had to space out the rescue missions. They had a close scare on June 19th when the seminary was suddenly visited one day by an inspector for the Dutch education ministry. Looking around, he noticed a lot of children and babies who were clearly too young to be seminary students. So he asked Johan, are these Jewish children? And Johan replied, you don't really expect me to answer that, do you? The inspector said nothing and continued his investigation. He was oddly quiet and Johan worried that he might report him to the SS. Finally, at the end of the inspection, before the man left, he leaned over to Johan and whispered, in God's name, be careful. In September of that year, just a few months after they started, their mission ground to a halt. One of the rescuers was caught and tortured until he gave up the names of those involved. Johan went into hiding to avoid execution until the end of the war. The Nazis closed down the creche and shipped all the children in it and their teacher Henriette to concentration camps. Following the war, Johan became involved in politics, becoming a member of the Senate of the Netherlands and a member of European Parliament from 1956 to 1981. In 1970, he was given the title of Righteous Among the Nations. In 2012, after a visit to Israel and a meeting with Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, Netanyahu said, We say that those who save one life save a universe. You saved hundreds of universes. I want to thank you in the name of the Jewish people, but also in the name of humanity. In his later years, Johann shrugged off any fawning attempts by the media to label him as a hero. He said that he was haunted every day of his life by the faces of the hundreds of babies and children that he didn't save. Over 4,000 children had passed through the creche in a year's time, and he had to watch so many of them go to their certain deaths. 
He recalled the day before he had to go into hiding, knowing he had to make a last-ditch attempt to save as many babies as he could without anyone noticing. As he said, Now try to imagine 80, 90, perhaps 70, or 100 children standing there, and you have to decide which children to take with you. That was the most difficult day of my life. You know for a fact that the children you leave behind are going to die. I took 12 with me. Later on, I asked myself, why not 13? Everyone understood that if 30 children were brought, we could not save 30 children. We had to make a choice, and one of the most horrible things was to make a choice. Johan spent his whole life with his wife, Anna, until her death in 1998. They had two children, Katharina and Diane. In his free time, Johan was an incredibly gifted chess player. Johan passed away in 2018 at the age of 107 years old. Today, the seminary Johan saved so many lives in is now the Dutch National Holocaust Museum. Over 75% of Jews in the Netherlands were murdered in the Holocaust. My sources today were Wikipedia, the History Channel, the Washington Post, and Smithsonian Magazine. If you haven't yet, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It means the world to a totally homemade podcast. And if you're feeling social, you can follow Humans and History on Instagram at humans underscore in underscore history. Thank you so much for joining me today for our birthday celebration of Johan von Holst. Please join me on February 5th when we talk about the fabulous, the fascinating Dorothy Levitt, England's first female race car driver. See you then.